Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Hello. All right. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. So glad to see a lot of you here. And uh, I spoke last night and I was worried about the crowd, but we had a pretty good crowd last night. So, uh, um, and, and my name is Saul Hernandez. I'm one of the elders here at Celebration Church. And uh, our pastor, Robert Russell, is on sabbatical for the next few weeks. And so, um, he, while in his absence, a couple of us elders uh, have been tasked with, with speaking in church. And so you heard from, and some of you that are visiting may not know this, so you heard from Michael West last week, and, and I thought just did a phenomenal job. It's very, very impactful, right? And, um, and so you get me this, this week. So, but um, I, I do want to say, you know, um, and, and it, you know, getting up, and teaching, you know, in church and particularly here, you know, Sunday after Sunday is just a really, I can imagine, because I'm only doing this this one week, right? It's a daunting task, right? It's a huge responsibility. Um, and, and our pastor, Robert, just gets up, you know, Sunday after Sunday, and he brings his A game, and he brings, you know, I feel these messages that, that uh, rooted in Scripture and, and very thoughtful and thought-provoking Right, and I can't imagine the energy, the spiritual energy, and also the spiritual attack. I would think that that these folks that that do this Sunday after Sunday. I think of Jonathan. I think of our worship leaders. And so, I guess before we get started, I, I would ask you to uh, pray for pray for our for Robert. Right, pray for our staff. Pray for the folks in the children's ministry. Because I would, you know, what they're, the work they're doing is so important. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's work that's got eternal significance, eternal impact, which we're going to talk about today, right? And I would think there's nothing more than the enemy would like than to wreck them and wreck their lives and wreck their marriages, wreck their testimony, right? Wreck their effectiveness. So I think it's very, very important that we continue to uphold and uplift those folks in our prayers. So, but anyway... Uh, so if you've been at church, and I, I would assume there's, there may be some folks with a crowd this big that's been visiting, so, but if you've been here, you know that Robert has been talking about brokenness, right? And, and I'm not going to do it justice, but he's been talking almost about two sides of, of brokenness, right? One part of brokenness is kind of that, he talks about us having that humble, contrite heart, being very open right, to think, to spiritual things, having uh, this sense of willingness to obey God, right, willingness to listen, to look for him for direction, and it takes a certain amount of humility, right, a certain amount of brokenness in our spirit to acknowledge that we are not in control, right? So that's kind of one side of brokenness, right, the, the, the two sides of that coin, right? On the other side, he's been talking about brokenness in the context of that we are all fallen, broken, to a degree, damaged human beings, right? One thing's for certain about brokenness in that context is either you've been broken, you're broken today in this auditorium, or you're going to be broken, right? There's no other things, and I can tell you, I've talked about this before, and again, I don't want to be presumptuous. A lot of people in here, right, and I'm not sure which one of those you are, but I can tell you, we've been here almost 20 years, and there's many, and we always sit in that side of the church. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a sin to always pick the same place, but anyway, that's where we sit, and there's a history to that. There's a reason. Our kids used to, my wife used to be in children's ministry, and then, so we, but anyway, I digress. Many times I've walked through those doors there and sat in those seats over 20 years, and I've been broken, right? We all have, either broken because of something I've done, goofy in my life, or because of life, or because of circumstances, right? So, so Robert has been talking and teaching on both sides of that coin, right? That brokenness coin. And it's interesting, 
because Michael last week talked about persevering through brokenness. And he talked about Paul and the early church. And it was really eye-opening in how Paul persevered, right? And he was tasked with shepherding all these churches. And he went on these missionary journeys in the early days, right? Before they had the scriptures and Paul was ministering and he was connecting, right? He was connecting with all these people and all these churches and for the rest of his life, that's, that's what he did. And so, so I thought today I would talk about connecting in brokenness, but seeing it as the 4th of July, talking about an American story. Now, it's interesting because you say, in today's world, and I'm an IT guy, right? That's what I do every day. That's what I went to school for. You would think that we live in the most connected world and the most connected culture that in the history of mankind. And to a degree, that is true, right? We have, not in my pocket, and it's up here. I meant to bring it so I knew what time it was, but oh well, I'm just gonna go till I'm done and you guys are gonna have to sit here and listen, so I don't have my cell phone up here. But anyway, you know, my cell phone, if I had it up here, I could connect to any computer anywhere in the world practically through my cell phone, right? We're connected at work with Zoom and we're connected, you know, uh, with all the various social media platforms. We're over-connected. So in one way you would say that as far as connection, Saul, we're connected to death. However, I'll challenge you this morning and tell you that I think as far as connection, I think we're a lot less connected now, especially post-COVID, right, than we ever have. And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about digital connection. I'm talking about personal and spiritual connections, connections with people. It was really interesting after Michael preached last week or spoke and gave the message about Paul. What enabled Paul, in a sense, to spread the gospel in those early days, to visit all those churches, right? To encourage those churches is all the Roman roads. It was fascinating, right? There was this infrastructure that allowed Paul, now granted some of those roads were dangerous, there was thieves, there was dangerous animals, right? There was some places that he was way out, but he still had roads. But when he got to those churches, when he ministered, it was all about personal connection with people. And I kind of thought about it this week. I didn't mention this last night, but it's kind of like what the technology is today. Technology may still may be that road that now will enable us to reach more people, right? However, um, when you get there, it's still one-on-one connection. And that's one thing I'm going to do, and we've, we've, we've tried to, my wife and I have talked about this, is we're going to try really, really hard to be purposeful about our connection, certainly our connection to Christ, but our connection to the body of Christ, and even our connection to those folks that may not be believers, that may not know Jesus the way we know him, right? As our savior, as our, as our uh, you know, as our friend, um, so as our redeemer. So anyhow, um, so I wanna talk to you about uh, Jesus' life and one particular series of events that were probably, I think, um, the most impactful, probably the most dramatic uh, times in his life where he connected. And that was the time, and again, I, you know, this, is, this was right before he was crucified, right? So most of you know the story. He was in Jerusalem for Passover, and the night before uh, he was to be crucified, he brought all of his disciples together to share a meal and do a lot of other stuff. Now, his disciples didn't know what was coming. They didn't know that the very next day Jesus would be crucified and their world would be rocked, right? And the course of human history would be changed forever, right? They knew something was going on, but they didn't know it was going to be to that degree, right? Now, Jesus did know, right? He was very aware, very attuned of the events that were about to transpire. And, um, you know, it, it is, and I don't want to over, you know, I feel like I'm, uh, uh, as far as connection, 
I think everybody gets it. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse a little bit. But really, when you think about Jesus and his life and the essence of his life, the essence of the gospels, and the essence of his relationship with those disciples, it was about connection, right? Because through those connections, he was able to take a group of very unlikely, very unworthy, very undeserving, very broken people, right? And through his connections with them, he set them on course to literally turn the world upside down. So the night before his resurrection, uh, they decided they get into a place called the upper room, right? And, that's in, and, and this, this is all talk, John 14 through 17 kind of recounts what happened, right? So you can imagine the burden on Jesus, what was weighing on him. Not only was he thinking about what he was about to endure the next day, the trial, the initial, you know, the tortures, the beatings, his death, but he was thinking about, you know, I've been with this, with this, with this group of people for three and a half years, and I'm about to go, and boy, they don't even know, right? Because Jesus knew what was coming, but they don't even know what was coming. So I'd imagine that weighed really, really heavily on his heart. So that night, a lot of things happened, and a lot of big things happened, right? They sh- and it all happened around the meal, right? They shared a meal. So one of the things that happened, of course, was that um, um, uh, Jesus called out, not necessarily in this order, but Jesus washed the disciples' feet, right? Kind of shocked them, right? So in, in, a, in a spirit of service and, and, and um, in humility, right, and brokenness, Another thing that happened that night is um, Jesus called out Peter, right? One of his most uh, vocal supporters, and, and, and I, sort of, I feel like Peter sometimes. I know all of us do probably at some times. Because he said, Peter, you're going to die me three times. And I know I'm not going to do it. Well, he does, right? Another big thing that happened that night was Jews, Judas Iscariot, right? He had betrayed Jesus, and his sin came out, and that was the breaking point, right? So in the middle of all this stuff... You know, they call out Judas. Judas is discovered as somebody who's going to betray Jesus, ultimately betrays Jesus, and he leaves, he leaves the supper. And then, of course, they have communion. They break bread. They do that. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, the, the Eucharist, in, in some Christian churches, denominations call it the Eucharist, right? They have communion around the table, and, uh, and they share in the, in, the, in, in, in the bread, right, which represents the brokenness, right? God's body broken for them. And, of course, they drink the wine, and it represents the, sh- the spilled blood of Jesus. So I don't think they knew how literal, right, that the very next day they would see him broken and bleeding, right? But that happened. And then the last thing that kind of happens is something that the, the uh, commentaries and the theologians, theologians call the farewell discourse, which is what's found in John 14 through 17. And that kind of sounds like a fancy name for me, but basically... That is the last thing, those were the last things that Jesus was going to share before the events of the next day. It's almost like the ultimate, you know, uh, cosmic pep talk, right? Or, and so to me, I'm thinking, wow, pretty, must have been pretty important stuff, right? So, and it was. And so, and, and the farewell discourse has four parts, and I'm going to go through those four parts with you. And they're all found in these, in, in John 14 through uh, John 17. Uh, and the first part was, better turn this on. First thing he did is he went out of his way to comfort them, right? John talks about, it, it, Thomas says in this part of scripture, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Wait a minute, you're leaving us. So, how, and, and I guess he didn't realize how he was going to leave, but we don't know where you're going. How do we know where to go? How do we know what to do? We've been following you around for three and a half years, three years. Where are we going? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's basically saying, yeah, I, I'm not going to be physically around, right? But I'm still going to be the way in the life, and I'm still going to be the road to the Father. And even though I'm not going to physically be here, you're still going to have an anchor. You're still going to have someone to follow. So that's one way they comfort him. Jesus comforts his disciple. The second way he comforts him is found in verse 16, and he says, 
And I'm also, to help you in that, right? To help you in that course, right? I'm gonna give you another advocate to help you, which will be with you forever, and that's the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit. Because I'm not gonna leave you as orphans, and I'm gonna come to you, right? So, no worries, I'm leaving, but it's all good. I'm still gonna be the way, and oh, by the way, I'm gonna give you this thing called the Holy Spirit, right? That's gonna lead you and guide you. So, try not to fear. And, and it's interesting, I guess that if I was, I'm not, I don't wanna get hit by a lightning bolt, I'm not Jesus, but I would think if I was in that moment, that's probably one of my first reactions would be to comfort, right? To comfort, knowing what was coming. So, farewell discourse, four things. First thing is to comfort his disciples. Second thing, Jesus goes out of his way and he talks about, he says, I am the true vine. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must be remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So the second thing in this farewell discourse, besides comfort them, he says, I want you to know going forward that I will be your source of strength right? And it's very, very important, hear me, disciples, that you stay connected with me. In order for you to bear fruit, you're going to re- you're gonna have to be able to get sustenance from the vine, and I am the vine. And if you don't connect to me later on in verse 18, it talks about if you, as the branch, are not connected to the vine, What's going to happen is not only are you going to not bear fruit, but you will wither and you will die. Right? So remember, disciples, very, very important to maintain that connection with with me. Right? So that's the second thing that he shares with his disciples during this very important, right, uh, farewell discourse. The third thing he talks about is he says, oh, by the way, let me give you a heads up. It will be difficult. They will hate you because they hated me. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it has hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world will hate you. However, there's no however in it, but this is really interesting, this last verse. It says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Remember Paul, right? And saying the amount of persecution, right? However, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So yes, they will hate me like they hated you and you will have to endure suffering that you can't even imagine, I am sure. If they probably knew, they may have just scattered, right? But however, I will empower you, I will give you the Holy Spirit and you have the potential, you will be able to speak, right, and teach in the same way I'm able to teach, right? So the suffering comes with that as well, right? I'm not gonna give you the suffering and yet not empower you, if you will, to be an effective communicator of the gospel, the good news, right, of Jesus Christ, that Jesus can break, can, can fix broken people. So, so that's the third thing Jesus talks about in this farewell, I keep wanting to say disclosure, but it's a discourse. Is everybody with me so far? I don't see any, I see a few heads nodding, okay. All right, so what's the fourth thing he does? The fourth thing he does, which I think is pretty powerful and will bring me back, bring us back to what I wanna talk about, tell a story, tell my American story, how God connected with me in my brokenness and in the brokenness of my family, is Jesus prays for all of us. He spends a good part of chapter 17, a good part of chapter 16, I believe, 
praying. It's a beautiful, it's a really incredible prayer because you get a glimpse to me of what was going through God's Jesus, who was, by the way, he was fully man, right? And all the emotions that come with him being fully man. What he was going through and the angst and the pressure, right? This is it. So this is his last Real, um, you know, it, it, it's almost like this is it, man. It is game time. I hate to use sports analogies, but it is game time. And he is praying his heart out. I mean, you can, you can read those words and you can see he's just earnestly praying and praying. Because right after this prayer, he, they leave the upper room. They go across to the garden with his disciples. And that's when it all breaks loose, right? That's when he's captured. And then the events of the next day where he's crucified happen, Right? But what's really interesting, one of the last things, and it's a long prayer, it's the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in Scripture. One of the really interesting things about this prayer is found in verse 20. And it says, my prayer is not for them alone. Them is the disciples, right? Because a lot of it was praying about give them strength, I'm getting power with the Holy Spirit. However, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the impact of that, what those words are saying was, at that very time, at that precipice, right, at that crescendo, I'm even kind of getting goosebumps thinking about what he must have been feeling. At that very time, he was praying about you. He was praying, because we're me, who will believe me through their message, he knew what these guys and this group of men and women were going to do and how Paul and all that stuff in the early church and the craziness, and he knew. But ultimately, we, us in this room, me, would be beneficiaries of people telling that message. So at that time, he was thinking about, if, he would, if somebody would have said, I don't want to use any of your names, but what about Saul? Oh, I know exactly how Saul's gonna be connected to me through, I know exactly Saul's story. I know what's gonna happen. Same thing there. He would have called you out by name. And that's incredibly powerful. And if you're in here, and, and again, I don't wanna be presumptuous, and you don't know Jesus, or a lot of this stuff is foreign, you don't know him in that way, Right? He wants to have a very personal, individual connection with you. And it does not matter how broken you are or how broken you were when you walked into this room. That's what the gospel is about. Jesus is in the business of putting broken people and broken lives together. That's what this was all about. Those people that were with him were all broken but yet, that's what he did. So, I think, I know I get a little excited, but it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. And it's something that we can hang our hat on, right? It's sitting right there, and in this case, orange and white, right, in the scriptures. So, so what I want to do now is share with you a little bit of my American story. And um, it starts way before I was born. My dad was raised in a little village on the Orinoco River in Venezuela. If you know anything about that part of the world, the Orinoco River is kind of like the Amazon, right? It, it, it kind of snakes its way through Brazil and ultimately ends up in the eastern part of Venezuela. It's very remote. It is what you prototypically think of as a jungle. Um, and... Uh, he, uh, that's where he was raised. It's a little village called Kirikiri. And as a young man, very young man, his, um, he lost his father. And my dad got lost in the jungle one night, and it was pouring rain. And his father went out to look for him. He was a little boy. I think he was three or four, maybe. And his father went out to look for him. Well, my, my dad eventually came home, but his dad stayed out all night, caught pneumonia and died, right, within a few days, and... So, um, so at a very young age, my dad faced a lot of, a lot of difficulty. And uh, he found himself in Kirikiri as, as a young boy being raised by his grandmother. And uh, it just so happens 
that there was a missionary that came to Kirikiri in 1935. And um, she needed a place to stay. And so she rented a room at his grandmother's house. So, um, and, and that's where he first heard the gospel. She ran a little good, it's not good news club, but it is akin to a good news club, a little Bible study for the neighborhood kids with the flannel graph and all that jazz. And so he was exposed to the gospel. Um, not long after that, at the age of 13, my dad joined the Venezuelan military. He lied about his age. He said he was 16, which to me is still crazy to be giving some kid an automatic weapon. But he was given this automatic weapon, and immediately, you know, he went to fight in the jungles of Venezuela against some of these, they were guerrillas. I think they were socialist-leaning guerrillas, leftist guerrillas. But anyway, and that's, that's how he started, 13 years old, right? Of course, obviously, no schooling. Um, what was interesting about that, there's a story, and I've heard it twice. Sometimes you hear these family stories, you think, ah, come on. You all have any of those kinds of stories? It's like, well, I heard the story. No. So I heard the story from two sources, so I think it's true. But there is a story of my grand, his grandmother during one of these really intense firefights in the jungle, her snaking, sneaking her way through the jungle to take my dad lunch. Because really, she was really concerned about him getting enough to eat, and so she took him lunch and took all the rest of the troops lunch. And, and I've heard that story twice, and so I think it's true. But, um, but I don't know. I think that's an interesting story. I'm not sure how it relates, right? But, hey, it's a cool story. So um, anyway, he later rose in the ranks of the military in Venezuela, and um, he actually ended up on a Navy ship, a Venezuelan Navy ship. Now, during World War II, Venezuela had one Navy ship. And the Germans sunk the Navy, the only ship they had. I mean, it's like, come on, man. It's like the only ship we have. So anyway, so post-World War II, uh, the Americans gave the Venezuelans. And by the way, Venezuela provided a lot of oil to the U.S., to the United States during World War II. So, you know, since of gratitude, they gave them, I think, one or two ships. I can't remember. So somehow my dad ended up on one of these Navy ships in the 50s. And the ship... I think they went to Norfolk, I believe, or somehow they either were in Norfolk to pick up the ship or they somehow were in Norfolk. So here's my dad from Venezuela in the 50s in Norfolk on this Navy ship. And he's like, okay, this U.S. thing is it's not a bad place, right? If things go south, this may, be, this may be an option for me, right? And so he connected. He connected with the United States in the 50s in Norfolk while he was a Navy officer on a Navy ship. So anyhow, he does that, and he continues to have a pretty colorful life, although it takes a turn for the worse. Uh, because of his politics he, and, and because of his alignment to a particular political party and his involvement in a political uh, presidential campaign, he ran the campaign for one of the presidents, somebody who was elected president of Venezuela. He found himself, the night before our inauguration, thrown in, in jail, Right? And he stayed there uh, for a long time. He was, he was beaten and he was, and he was tortured. And it wasn't until a military coup, right, his buddies in the military took over the government that he was released from, from that jail. But I know that was a very, very difficult, right, physically and, um, and mentally and spiritually. And he developed a lot of anger during that time. And he blamed to a large degree organized religion for that. And the biggest organized religion in Venezuela at the time and in most of South America was Roman Catholicism. So he had a lot of anger towards organized religion. And what he saw, his version of what religion and spirituality was, was through those lenses. And he blamed them a lot, not only for his situation, but for what he saw happening in the country of Venezuela. Right? It was spiraling downward to a very, very bad bad place, and so he blamed them for that, right? He was very broken in that. So uh, not after, long after that, we had some other, he had some other issues. He, uh, he did some things that put him on the wrong side of some very bad and mean people in Venezuela that wanted him to not exist, just like they had done to some of his friends, wanted our family not to exist, and he said, that's it. I'm out of here. If I want a future for my kids, by the way, I was born in Venezuela, right? Uh, at the time, there was three of us. I want a future for my kids. I gotta go. 
I don't see this, I, I, I just gotta go. So that's what he did. So he packed us all up, two suitcases. I don't remember, but I was told one of them had money in it and the other one had clothes. All five of us, and we got on a 747 in Caracas and we flew to New York City. Now, at the time, he told us later, he had two, there's a plan A and a plan B. Plan A was New York City, if he could get in and could work it out. Plan B was Panama, especially sitting here on the 4th of July. I'm so thankful that plan A is the one that worked out, amen? So I sound like a Baptist preacher, amen, amen? So uh, anyway, so, uh, so anyway, that's how we got there, right? And the first few years of us living in this country, we lived in some place called Washington Heights in New York City. Now, has anybody seen the movie? There's a movie now, In the Heights. Anybody in here? Anybody else? There's, okay, at least one person. Yay, last night there was nobody. There's a new movie out now called In the Heights. It's a musical, and you can go see it at the Pinnacle or wherever. But anyway, it talks about that part of New York City, kind of above Manhattan. Um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of bordered by Harlem and all these places. And it, right now it shows that it's like a really cool place. Well, back in the day it wasn't. It's was a very violent place. New York City in the 70s was pretty, pretty rough. But that's where we landed, right? Because that's where we knew. And that's where the immigrants knew to go. And it's funny, my mom tells a story. She says, you did a bait and switch. You painted this beautiful picture of Norfolk in the 50s. And we landed in New York City in, you know, near Spanish Harlem in the 70s. And I was like, whoa, that's not what I signed up for. But at that point, it was too late. So during that time, it was, it was a tumultuous time because we were in immigration limbo, if you, for lack of a better word. We were really on a visa, but we kind of outstayed our visa, and he was trying to plead his case. It's like, you know, hey, look, but we had our plan B. But God worked it out. In our brokenness, God was able to work it out and make it such that eventually we got what's called a green card. Everybody heard that, I'm sure. Actually, they're blue now, but I don't know why they're called green. Maybe they were. But we were resident aliens, right? It's almost like uh, you're, you're allowed to come to this country, but you're sort of on probation, Right, you can't vote, there's a few other things you can do, but you're at least legal, and you can at least work. And we're gonna give you a probation for a few years. Yeah. And, and that's where we were, right? So um, eventually we made our way to South Florida, again, kind of following the Spanish community. We landed in a place in Miami, well, it's not a suburb, a part of Miami called Carroll City, Opalaca. If you know anything about those areas, you may not. Not exactly. A little bit better than New York City, but not much, right? And again, a lot, of, a lot of violence. And so, but it was at that point that again, my parents, my mom specifically, she said, boy, this is a tough place. We see old Saul there. And, and I've heard of this Christian school. I don't know anything about it, but it's really, really strict. So we're gonna send Saul there. So I get there, right? Rough around the edges a little bit. All of a sudden thrown in a traditional Christian environment, um, didn't know anything about Jesus, God, the Bible. There was, you know, I, I never even cracked open a Bible. But I, I get there. Now, let me back up because I skipped one really important thing. Back when we first got to Miami, uh, living in Opalaka, there was a neighbor that started something called a Good News Club. Anybody heard of that? And it was, again, it's like a little Bible story thing. And so I was a little boy. I was invited to come. Sound familiar? Right? My dad's story. And it was really, really cool. And I remember if you came five times in a row, they would put stars up and you get a prize. So I was going because it was a prize, right? I was going because it was a free toy. But anyway, again, first time I heard the gospel and I started to hear about things, who this Jesus person was and these stories. I didn't accept Christ at that time, but there was a connection there. That lady connected with me. The gospel, you know, that seed was planted in my heart and my soul, right, that once that's done, and I think oftentimes we, we all get discouraged in, in our service and in our work and how we, we, you know, we share with people and we love on people and we feel like our seeds are just, that we're trying to plant these seeds of love and grace and mercy that will ultimately lead somebody to a place where they can have a relationship with Jesus and they're just, seem like they just don't work, right? Just nothing happens. But I'm here to tell you, you don't know. You don't know the impact. That lady, I can't even remember who she is, her name, I can't hardly remember her face. But I remember being in those meetings and those flannel graphs, right? And it had an impact on me. 
Um, so anyway, ultimately I end up at a Christian school and I remember sitting in a science class and a science teacher named Mr. Green was talking about how God wanted to, the God, the creator of the universe, wanted to have a relationship with good old Saul. And I was amazed by that. I said, you know, that makes absolutely no sense. However, there was one problem. The problem was sin. And he explained it in a sense that sin are kind of like bricks. I'm not sure how theological this is, but it made sense to me as a young boy. Bricks, right? And that that's where Jesus came in. Jesus came in and kind of like the, the Kool-Aid guy. He busted through that wall of bricks and of sin, right? And he made a way for me to connect with Jesus. And that was, when I heard that, I was absolutely amazed. And I said, yeah, I want you to come in my life, Jesus. I want you to bust through that wall of sin and bricks. And I want to have a relationship with you. And that's what I did. Very next chapel, I go forward, September 12th, 1979, and I ask the Lord to come in my heart, save me. And I tell you, it changed my life, figuratively, literally. Um, I remember in those early days, there's another teacher, Mr. Dodgins and his wife, they connected with me, and what they did was on Wednesdays, they would ask me to, I would go home with them after church, and we would go through Bible studies together, kind of like the beginning the basics of Christianity and the gospel and trying to help equip me, right? I remember one particular study we did about the armor of God and I still remember that study and they would take me home and we would do the study, they would feed me and I never ate the way I ate at their house. They would feed me such great food and connect with me and then they would take me back on Wednesday nights and we'd to church and I would go home. And uh, shortly after that, you know, I made a decision, which at the time I regretted, but I can tell you now that it was God that was involved in that decision, right? As a 13-year-old boy, I did something that was, whew, there was, the youth group that I was going to had a Spanish church, and I invited the Spanish pastor of that church to come to my house and visit with my parents, except I didn't tell my parents, And I can remember that day because he showed up. Everybody was shocked. My parents are very, you know, cordial and hospitable. And he spoke Spanish. And they let him in. And I tell you, after he left that night, it was not pretty with my dad. I mean, he was a violent guy. He had a drinking problem. It was, it was just, I don't go into details, but it was just not pretty. However, shortly after that, my mom told me, she said, you know, uh, I think I want to go to church with you, go sit with that pastor, see what it's all about. So my mom, as a result of that, started going to church, to the Spanish church. And it wasn't long before that, before she accepted the Lord as her Savior. She made that connection because that Spanish pastor, right, through that connection, she made connection to God, the vine, right, through that pastor. So then a whole series of events my mom shared the gospel with my sister and her mom, my grandmother, and they accepted the Lord and started going to church. I was able to share with my brothers, and they accepted the Lord and started going to church. And so in a matter of months, God was doing something really miraculous in our family, transforming us, changing us, healing us. We had all been broken. My older siblings, I don't want to get too personal, they were older when we made that transition. A lot of difficulties right, when you make that transition from one country to another, the older you get, the harder it gets, really. So, but then there was my dad, completely averse to organized religion, angry. He said he did not believe, he believed in science, kind of like the, the movie, the, there's a movie reference there, some of you all may get or not. But anyway, he didn't believe in God, he believed in science, right? And uh, we would go to church Sunday after Sunday, he wouldn't go. And I remember one time, and my mom would never nag him. She would never push him. She would never say, Julian, you need to go to church. One Sunday morning, he told her, you know, I'm gonna go to church with you. So we were all like, whoa. So he goes to church once, and then he continues to go to church, and then he continues to go to church. And my mom said he would never say anything. He would stand there when they were singing with a blank stare. He never responded. He never reacted. He would do nothing. 
And so one Sunday, I'm leaving my youth group and going to meet my parents at the Spanish church. And I'm like, where are they? They're not coming out. They're not coming out. So I go down into that little place where they're meeting, kind of like our apex, and go to the front. And there's my dad with tears rolling down his face with my mom saying, Saul, I've accepted Jesus. I'm broken. I need a savior. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. And I tell you, the transformation was incredible. I remember very distinctly him going home that day, a little condo that we had in Opalaka, and opening the liquor cabinet. We didn't have a lot, but he had some, and pouring every bit of it down the drain. Every bit of it. And again, I don't know, you know, I'm not, you know, for him, that was part of it. That was part of his brokenness. And, and you know, it, it, it's really interesting. And a few years later, I connect, I, I talked to him, and I said, you know, and, and my parents since then have been so faithful in church. My mom has been such a prayer warrior. Um, as of late, she's struggling a, a lot with, with some physical issues. But they were faithful and they, and they constantly, even in the difficult times, praise God. So they have remained faithful. And it's, it's interesting, um, not long ago, I talked to my dad and I said, you know, dad, tell me about that. I said, why were you so, so, uh, so averse, right? And he told me that story and he shared a story about, like I shared you about organized religion. I said, well, how did that all come back? He says, but you know what's interesting, Saul? He said, I remember that missionary back when I lived in Kirikiri, the banks of the Orinoco River, sharing with you the gospel. And I was never able to break loose of that. I wasn't, that always stayed with me, even during the times when I, had, I didn't want anything to do with a God or God or whatever. That was with me. Those seeds stayed with me. So, and he gave me a name. He gave me a name. He said, her name was Minnie Wallace. So, the power of the interwebs, right? The power of, you know, Googles and everything else. We started doing a little research. And so, I tracked down, my wife and I tracked down Minnie Wallace. So, this is Minnie. This is, the rep, this is her husband. She was really interesting, right? In 1935, she graduated from Bible school in L.A., and this sounds like a funny story. She took a banana boat, literally a banana boat. Now, imagine, she was single at the time, 22 years old. She took a banana boat from L.A. to Panama. Then she hops on another boat to get to Venezuela, right? So she gets to the mission field, and Orinoco River Missions was established in this city called Caripe. And what their goal was is they were gonna put little outposts all and down the river, right? From there, they would try to start churches, minister to the Indians, share the gospel with people, right? Because at that time, Venezuela in the 30s, was still there was a lot of indigenous people. And a lot of them um, didn't take very good to outsiders, right? They were suspect of outsiders, and especially if they were light-skinned, right? So from what I can tell, many was pretty light-skinned and a female, Right, So somehow, she ends up in this little village of Kirikiri, right, living with my dad's grandmother. Five years later, she goes through, she gets very, very sick. She catches malaria and ends up having to leave for a year, comes back. But in that process, she meets Alvin. Alvin was also a fellow missionary, right, with Orinoco River Missions. They get married, and they start this Bible institute called La Delicias, and it's really interesting here. I have a little story about some missionaries from Orinoco River in the 50s traveling that route, right? The Orinoco River, kind of like Paul, right? Sound familiar? And their experiences as they go down the river, they have MFA, Mission uh, Fellowship, I think it's whoever Michael Broyles is with, Mission Fellowship Aviation or Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF, whatever. These pilots are flying through, and it's a fascinating account, even in the 50s. They encounter indigenous peoples that really have not had a lot of exposure to, 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 to uh, Westerners. There's crocodiles, there's malaria. I mean, it's, it's what you would think of, right? The Jungle Boat Cruise and 
at Disney World kind of thing, right? So, but anyway, so they start this Bible Institute. And what's really interesting here in the 50s, they talk about at the time, Alvin was running the Institute and Minnie was working with the food service and also the library. I mean, she wasn't this grand, you know, a la James Elliott, you know, missionary that people are going to remember or Lottie Moon or one of those. She was just humbly serving in that little Bible school. And it's really interesting because it talks about they had about 40 or 50 students. And this was in 1951. And one of the lines here says, the reason it was so important is they felt that from a political standpoint, they didn't know how much longer that they would be allowed to stay in the country and they would be kicked out. And true so happens, it wasn't 1951, but it was 2005 when Hugo Chavez kicked out all the American missionaries, including Orinoco River eventually became New Tribes Mission, and he kicked them out in 2005 because he said they were American colonialists, right? He didn't even like the name New Tribes, right? So, but anyway, they stayed and ministered in Venezuela for 44 years. Here's a picture of them right before retiring. She married, he was Lewis, and so they became, she was Minnie Wallace Lewis. And um, I tell you, that is powerful, right? We talk about connections. She connected with my dad at a, what was seemingly uneventful. It wasn't even the upper room type of thing. And yet, the impact she had and how he came to know Jesus all those years later. Well, the story doesn't end there. There's one more thing I want to share with you about my dad and connection. Now, this is him. You remember this picture at the beginning. I bet you all thought that was like the U.S. military. Didn't you? Some of you thought that. That's actually my dad as a Navy officer in the 50s. That's the Venezuelan boat that the U.S. had given to Venezuelan. And he looks pretty dapper, I think, uh, in, his, in his Navy uniform. And then, of course, that's my dad about a month ago. I went to see him. He lived with us for a while here in, in Tri-Cities for about 25 years. And him and my mom's health is very poor. As a matter of fact, he's in the hospital as we speak. He's not doing well. It, it's just a matter of really weeks, maybe, maybe less. Who knows? Um, and I spent, I spent 10 days with him. And let, me, and let me finish with this. I'll finish with this story about that picture on the right. Um, he, uh, so he needed a haircut. So I get on, you know, haircut places near me, and I found a barber shop. It was a Puerto Rican barber shop. I doubt anybody's ever been to a Puerto Rican barber shop, but they're a lot of fun. It's kind of like a cultural experience. It's like going to Puerto Rico but being in the States, right? And you walk in, and it's really loud, and there's reggaeton music, and these guys are just, I don't know, they're very urban. I don't know how else to describe it. And it's just really cool, and it's very warm. But I'll tell you this, and it's funny. This, barber, this particular barber shop was a little bit of a sketchy neighborhood, and it was a sketchy storefront, right? So from the outside, I'm thinking, I don't know, right, and everything. I walk in, and I don't get this feeling very often, but I walk in, and immediately I thought, you know, this is a, this is a good place. I feel the Spirit of the Lord in this, in this place. It's a Puerto Rican barbershop with all that reggaeton playing. It was loud and everything. And we get in there, and sure enough, I said, look, I'm, I was real apologetic. My dad's in a wheelchair. Do you mind cutting his hair? And those guys sprung into action. They moved one of those heavy barber chairs. They put him there. They started making over him and taking care of him. And this boy here, 24 years old, spent an hour and a half shaving him and cutting his hair. And he was so tender and so sweet and so kind. And um, what was really interesting is about a third of the way through, him, my dad and him had started talking. And he shared with my dad that he was a worship leader at a local Spanish church. And immediately, my dad, who is physically broken, and honestly, even that week, I went to see him, mentally broken, right? This night, he's, he's only got one leg, he's suffering all these things. I mean, he's ready to go home. His, his countenance lit up. I'm not exaggerating for the purposes of a good story. His countenance lit up. His face lit up. And he made a connection with that 24-year-old boy. And then they started sharing about Jesus and talking about how good God had been to them. And I remember the boy in Spanish, because my dad doesn't speak much English still, saying, you know, Dios te falla, perdón, la gente te falla, pero Dios nunca te falla. And what he was saying was, is 
People may fail you, but God will never fail you. And my dad, tears welled up in his eyes and he started crying. And it was a beautiful, you know, and I'm, I just said, thank you, Lord. One more connection, right? This boy didn't go to work that day. He's a barber, for goodness sake. He's not a minister, a preacher. But that day, surely he didn't go intending to make a spiritual connection, right? To minister, really minister, be God's hands and feet, get his hands dirty. You know, he didn't intend to do that. But God had another plan, right? And so I'll finish this. I don't even know what time it is because I, I don't have a watch up here, but whatever. You're stuck here. I'll finish with this, right? A challenge and a call to action. And we're going to sing here in a minute. And we're not going to have an invitation or any of that jazz. But I want you to think while we're in that song, uh, I want you to think about a call to action. Think about making purposeful connections, right, in your life with people around you. Right, go out of your way to share that meal like Jesus did in the upper room, right, with your brothers and sisters in Christ and make those connections. You never know. Also, be purposeful about connections with the people that are around you, like this boy, right? Never in a million years would he think that he would be that, to that he would bless my dad that degree, right? So be purposeful. And also, and most important, remember, you know, God is that vine, right? He's our sustenance. And if you don't have that connection, if you've not made that connection, right, you won't be able to sustain. You won't be able to, to make it, right? You know, the healing, the brokenness comes. The healing of the brokenness comes. The restoration, right, comes in that connection. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.